So in this week's podcast, we are going to delve into the nutritional secrets for hormonal health. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Marilyn Glenville, uh, who is the UK's leading nutritionist specializing in women's hormonal and health issues, ranging from PMS to menopause, infertility, underactive thyroid, and also hormone-related diseases, including polycystic ovaries, fibroids, breast cancer, endometriosis, as well as osteoporosis. In this podcast, we're going to be learning what a woman needs to do for her hormonal health. So, hello, Marilyn. How are you? Hello, hello Patrick. Very well, thank you. Lovely to be speaking with you. And uh, how have you survived lockdown? Yes, pretty well, actually. The clinic's been running remotely, so that's been still working well and being able to support people even in these times. So have missed going into the clinic, but at least we can do everything online or by phone. So, yes, still been working well. Yes, it's accelerated our sort of move into the digital age, that's for sure. Um, yeah, definitely. And also giving talks uh, the same way, you know, by a webinar and that it's been very different from having an audience there who you can really interact with. So I've missed giving talks in front of people, but this is still a, a good way to do it. So um, I remember years back when PMS, premenstrual syndrome or uh, symptoms were uh, considered, well, first of all, they didn't exist. And then it was considered just a psychological issue. Uh, and then uh, gradually, and this was probably the early 80s, people started to wake up to the idea that there really was something called premenstrual syndrome. Do, do a lot of women suffer with this? Yes, I mean, they think it's about 70 to 90% of women are going to be having some form of symptoms premenstrually. And up to 30 to 40% of women could have symptoms so severe that they might interfere with their daily life. So it is a real problem. And like you said, it has been dismissed, underdiagnosed, and it can take years for some women to actually get a diagnosis. So it's been something that I think has been hidden, it's not been looked at carefully, and yet a lot of women are suffering from the symptoms. And what are the classic symptoms and what's the time frame? Is it just in the few days before a period? Well, I think that's the difficulty. When you think of doctors, they're usually, you know, taught to diagnose by symptoms. But actually, although the symptoms are there and they can range from mood swings, irritability, anxiety, a lot of headaches or migraines, depression, food cravings, it's actually the timing of these symptoms that gives the diagnosis of PMS and it needs to occur about seven to ten days before the period may go on for a couple of days in there but then disappears even maybe in a milder form but it's actually magnified in those seven to ten days before the period actually starts. And are there physical symptoms as well as if you like psychological changes? Yes, I mean the bloating, breast tenderness, some women feel like they're gaining a few pounds, but it's actually water retention. So there can be a lot of swelling, tiredness. So there are these, it's very much of this physiological and psychological symptoms at the same time. And why it can be so difficult to diagnose is the symptoms can vary from month to month. One month, you know, the woman may have really strong sugar cravings, there may be migraines another month or breast tenderness. It doesn't always have to be the same pattern 
of these 150 different symptoms that can be included in PMS, but it's the timing of the symptoms. And that's why symptom diary can be so helpful. Why would it occur in one month and not in another? Well, it can, they will get some symptoms, but they may not be the same ones. And obviously women don't always ovulate from the same side each month and there may be different hormonal changes. And I think also stress and what's going on in the woman's life can have a big impact as to how these symptoms might be manifesting and what what different ones there might be and also how she's eating so there's lots of different factors going on in terms of the strength of these symptoms and also the variation and uh, so what's the nutritional solution well, I think the one really important thing is actually to look at balancing blood sugar, which will help control the release of cortisol. And what we do know is that cortisol will actually interfere and block the receptor that would uptake progesterone. So it's going to affect what's happening when progesterone is released in the second half, which is the luteal phase of the cycle. So either stress, which also often of course releases cortisol but it can also come from uh, blood sugar fluctuations in terms of hypoglycemia so cortisol can actually be affecting the uptake of that hormone progesterone in the second half of the cycle and are there any specific nutrients that might be worth supplementing or ensuring are in the diet Yes, yeah, some really good research on magnesium and B6. And actually, they are more effective when they're combined together than if taken uh, apart. I would always use the, all the B vitamins and general um, other nutrients in there as well. But magnesium and B6 stand out. And also the herb Agnes Castus, which has had good, it was a clinical trial, British Medical Journal, really good in terms of helping with this pattern that's going on premenstrually. And how much B6 and magnesium? Well, I would suggest about 300 milligrams of magnesium if it could be done as magnesium citrate and even up to 25 milligrams of B6 where possible. And if they can do it as pyridoxal 5-phosphate, which is the form that the body has to convert it into, it's going to be easier for that woman, especially if she's under a lot of stress and her body can't make that conversion. And should these be taken throughout, um, you know, every day or just in the lead up to a, a period? Yeah. Yes, every day, because a lot of women say to me, well, I could do the dietary changes or I could just take the supplements the bit the second half of the month. But actually, this is a whole cycle. And what's happening in the first half can be controlling what happens in the second. So it does need to be basically a lifestyle and a dietary change. And I would say with most hormonal conditions for the woman to give herself three months to actually turn this around and the supplements and the herbs would need to be taken for those three months. The, with the herbs, it is contraindicated to take it if they're on anything like the pill vitamins and minerals absolutely fine but nothing if there's any hormonal medication going in and uh, how important are essential fats because one of the first waves of treatment was about uh, uh, gla omega-6 gamma linolenic acid evening primrose oil but uh, more recently we've sort of heard more reports of you don't want too much omega-6 to omega-3 what's what's uh, yeah 
it, it's a tricky one that and at some of my talks some of the women say to me well i've been on evening primrose oil for 10 years possibly put on at the start for breast tenderness um, and it can be helpful for that but you're correct in that we've got this total imbalance between omega-6 and 3 up to 25 times too much omega-6 coming from the diet so i would say to try and balance it out with the omega-3s and if breast tenderness is one of the main symptoms there's substances in anything that carries caffeine called methylxanthines and it's very much implicated in fibrocystic breast disease and yes it will even be in um, coffee even if it's decaffeinated and i have to say the women who suffer from this breast tenderness and can't even be hugged at this time um, have found it quite spectacular in taking out any form of caffeine which is carrying these methylxanthines so obviously the goal there would be to be completely caffeine free but if that's a bit of a tall order for some uh, would it be worth being caffeine free in the in the lead up to a period yes and that would be then thinking about once ovulation which is roughly about day 14 in a 28 day cycle taking that out and just seeing what the differences but i would always say really to push it towards the omega-3s where we now know that there's you know the benefits in terms of anti-inflammatory blood flow which is going to help with other you know menstrual problems like heavy bleeding also cramps so i'd push everything towards the omega-3s and try other ways of helping with the symptoms where the omega-6s or even in primrose oil might have been used before now, you mentioned cortisol, which is the long-acting adrenal hormone. And uh, I've, uh, vitamin C, it turns, is stored in the adrenal cortex and released in very large amounts under conditions of stress. Mm. So I wonder whether vitamin C uh, has, is at all helpful with PMS and also whether it helps progesterone or has an interfering effect as cortisol does. I don't know. I haven't seen any research on it, but like you said, under stress, the body's using much more vitamin C as it also is magnesium as well. So I couldn't see at all any downside of putting it in and just backing it up almost like a, an insurance policy for the woman. It's going to give them so many other benefits as well. So normally in a supplement program, I would always, I'd include a multivitamin and mineral that's appropriate for the age of the woman or the stage, put in the omega-3s and add in vitamin C as well. Uh, good. Now we're going to move through the life cycle. and I suppose the next issue that faces many women, and it's a major one, uh, is having a difficulty of conceiving. Yes, and it actually seems to be becoming a, a bigger problem, up to 25% of couples and women will have trouble conceiving and one in four women will miscarry and even if we look at the male fertility side they found that sperm counts have reduced by 53 percent over the last 50 years or so so there is a whole aspect of this problem with what we might call subfertility taking a long time to conceive or moving towards IVF treatment very quickly because it's not happening. And I think also we've got women in the older age category where 
Women may not have met the right person. They might have delayed because they had a wonderful career, which is understandable, but it is pushing fertility for that woman to be a bit more difficult because she's waiting longer than say a generation ago. And what are the major drivers of miscarriage and infertility? starting in the women because obviously this is an issue that affects men as well yes and i think it's very much multifactorial and i think when we are always looking at this holistic approach this integrated approach is really important obviously blood tests for hormone issues checking that the fallopian tubes are not blocked all of that's worthwhile medically to be investigated but really when we look at what we can achieve dietary wise, good um, information on the Mediterranean diet. Obviously diet is harder to control in terms of clinical trials. So most of the research has actually been on nutrients like zinc, antioxidants in particular, where the woman may have been told that actually her eggs are older and that's the issue. So there's really good research, particularly on coenzyme Q10, anywhere where we could improve the antioxidant value to help with what might be called aging eggs or low ovarian reserve. Now I know every year you are treating through your clinics um, hundreds of women who have difficulty conceiving. Uh, uh, what's your success rate? Well it was looked at under a University of Surrey um, when they were looking at the kind of dietary protocols that I was using um, and other clinicians were as well and it was about an 80% success rate so it was very high and that was also for natural conception but what I would also use is for those women who may be going for IVF treatment and using the same kind of dietary lifestyle programs in order to help improve the success rate of IVF, which is only in the UK about 25%. So it means that 75% of those cycles are failing. It can be thousands of pounds. So anything that can be done either to help natural conception or to improve an IVF success rate will be really important. And I think what is so useful for women to know is to think about a three-month preconception program because even with the women I see who may be in the older age category 35 or over and they've been told they've got low ovarian reserve and we can't change the quantity of eggs that a woman's had has that set but what most women don't know is that we can change the quality and we have a three month window of opportunity because it takes three months for that egg ma to mature in the ovary before it's released to ovulation. So we can actually change the quality of those eggs, which is really important, helps with um, either natural conception or in IVF treatment. So there, is thing there are things that she can do, even if she's been told that her egg store is lower than it should be for her age. And I noticed that for IVF treatment, I believe they give progesterone. Is a lack of progesterone or interference with progesterone? You mentioned the stress factor, cortisol. Is that a, you know, can that be a factor in uh, infertility and miscarriage as well? Yes, and I think a big factor. And um, normally, if a woman's going through an IVF cycle or an IUI, which is the um, artificial insemination, she will be given progesterone because it, that hormone is going to maintain that pregnancy for the first 12 weeks until the placenta takes over. So again, 
nutritionally would be what can we do to help reduce cortisol if it's impeding the uptake of progesterone or just making sure that everything's nutritionally good and yes she may be backed up with usually progesterone pessaries um, if there is either a history of miscarriage or she's going through an IVF or an IUI treatment. And what about homocysteine? I see that that's uh, often or a high level is associated with, with uh, miscarriage and, and uh, sort of birth problems, so to speak. Yes, and it has been shown to, to increase the risk. And I think it's really important now with the nutrients that we've got to put in the active methylfolate as well. So the supplements I formulated for the natural health practice, and one of them is called Fertility Support for Women, that actually has the active folic acid in there because there may be uh, genetic issues going on or a history of a, a neural tube defects. So I think if we can make sure the nutrient levels are good, some women do check for the homocysteine levels or they check for the um, MTHFR just ahead of time, just to make sure there's nothing else underlying that needs to be focused on directly. So for those unfamiliar, homocysteine is a measure, a blood test that you can have that uh, indicates a fundamental process called methylation, which is absolutely vital uh, in building healthy babies. And uh, there are three nutrients, especially, but not only, vitamin B12, vitamin B6 and folate. And that, by the way, is the reason why folate is, is so strongly recommended in, in pregnancy. But uh, folic acid, which is a stable um, synthetic form of folate, uh, some women don't convert it into the active, uh, it's called MTHF form. And that's why the use of methyl folate in supplements for those women can be better. And you can go into some more details on with a gene test to find out if you'd if you'd be a, you know, if you like a poor converter. So moving on from, uh, well, actually let's uh, cover men. Uh, what are the critical factors that you find in men who uh, are also failing to not conceive? You know? Yes, and it's also interesting that I think men should be looked at absolutely. It's like we say, it takes two to tango, but also for miscarriage as well. So although it's the woman that's miscarrying, if something is not right with the sperm and sperm could have two heads or two tails, then it may not allow a pregnancy to continue. So it's really important that the man is checked as well. I would do all the same nutritional factors for men, really good research on nutrients like zinc, also omega-3. Vitamin D that we haven't mentioned is also important both for men and women. Really brilliant research in the fertility world for male and female fertility and also we're able now not just to do a semen analysis for men but we do um, a sperm dna fragmentation test as well and this is where a man could have a completely normal semen analysis but his partner keeps miscarrying or it doesn't work during ivf and it's possible to reduce that dna fragmentation with higher levels of antioxidants so it's a really good test when there seems a situation that something is going wrong and nothing has been picked up. And all the nutrients, particularly zinc, the omega-3s, vitamin D, the antioxidants, really important for the man, just as they are for the woman. And particularly with miscarriage, the man needs to be looked at as well 
and not just think that the problem may be with the woman. Now, moving forward, uh, I'd like to sort of come up into the perimenopausal uh, time frame, maybe the decade before the menopause, but also in that process, of course, many women will have had children and uh, that is, you know, that's quite a stress on the, on the body as well. So there are different factors going on. Um, are there, is there a sort of, um, you know, critical age times when you find you have more patients uh, coming to you? And is it in that perimenopausal phase? Yes, very much so. And sometimes the women think that maybe they're losing their mind. They're not actually sure what's going on because this can start, this perimenopausal time frame within around the early 40s where there may be subtle changes going on. It could even be um, very subtle sort of depression, that sort of thing, but also the mood swings, but like they're going on all the time and not just premenstrually. There may be some hot flashes or night sweats, but that's not so much as that would happen nearer to the actual menopause itself. And when women talk about going through the menopause, they are actually describing this perimenopause stage because the menopause itself is the last period and women won't know that that's happened until they look back 12 months after. And we're only post-menopausal when we've had 12 months clear of no periods but it's this perimenopause stage where the cycle may change very subtly women may not ovulate every month the cycle may get shorter so 21 days so they're bleeding more often the periods may get heavier there's quite different changes all of those can be completely normal but they can be upsetting because many women may not think oh this is something to do with this start of this transition that's happening in this perimenopause stage and what's the uh, nutritional support to minimize these kind of issues? Well, I would say it would be wonderful if I could see women during this time frame for most women, because actually if they could prepare during this time frame, it would actually mean they could sail through the menopause. This transition could be really comfortable. And it is thinking about looking at lifestyle stress can be a factor as well because the adrenal glands will come into play excuse me to produce a form of estrogen called estrone as these women are producing less of it through from the ovaries so stress itself and cortisol has been found to make the menopause symptoms much more extreme so whatever we can do to prepare in this perimenopause phase is going to be really helpful and i have to say the standout dietary change would be to include more of what we call the phytoestrogens. Women have got really confused thinking that these foods are going to supply a form of estrogen, <clears throat> excuse me, and they're worried if they've got an estrogen dependent condition like fibroids, endometriosis, history of breast cancer, but they actually have a balancing effect on hormones. They're either stimulating a receptor in the brain and our bones, or they're blocking receptors where you don't want that extra stimulation like the breast, ovary and womb. So they need, they need to go in really at this stage because they're going to have such a powerful balancing effect on the hormones. And which are the main foods high in phytoestrogens? Well, we think of the legumes and everybody thinks of soya, but it's not the main one. 
I mean, yes, it does include these, what we call isoflavoins of the genestine and daidzine that are these types of phytoestrogens in these foods, but they're in chickpeas, they're in lentils, kidney beans, and also flax seeds as well. And when we think of all the cultures around the world, they've all got a dominant bean. You can think of um, the lentils, the dal from India, the hummus, the chickpeas from the Middle East, the black beans from places like Costa Rica, and then the soya, China, in Japan so these have been in these cultures for hundreds of years and when they've looked at the research on men in these cultures they don't have the same prostate cancer death rate as men in the west so they actually have a balancing effect on hormones for both men and women so they are such important foods that should be included in our diet yes there's some uh, sort of confusion in this area because some paleo diets say avoid that whole food group and there's talk about them being you know very high in lectins and possibly not being so good in lectin-free diets and so on but uh, it does seem that you can pretty much predict breast cancer and prostate cancer by knowing two things in a country and that is how much legumes they consume versus how much dairy Mm. Uh, which seems to be a big factor definitely for prostate cancer. So when does breast cancer sort of kick in? Is it in this perimenopausal phase? And what can we do to reduce the risk of that? No, it would normally be later and it comes on. Yes, it's connected with age as well. <clears throat> so people who are older are more likely at risk. And I have to say the standout things would be, yes, the phytoestrogens because they have this protective effect in terms of the receptors on the breast. Yes, dairy can be an issue as well because it, it's, involved, it's got insulin-like growth factor one, which is actually naturally present within the dairy itself. Um, the, the pulses need to go in there, like we talked about the legumes. And also um, what they also do is they help to release a protein from the liver called sex hormone binding globulin. And that actually, as the name suggests, helps to bind excess hormones. So it helps to bind testosterone, but also estrogen as well. So it's really important in terms of making sure that these foods are in there. And there's been good research on the cruciferous vegetables, even just having one and a half cups of cruciferous vegetables a day reduce the risk by 25%. So we have a lot of different foods. And I would say, do be careful about the red meat and particularly when it's um, heated up fairly high it's releasing things called heterocyclic amines which are linked to not only breast but also colon cancer so we have a lot of research and information now and I think where it's also coming into play is the gut microbiome we know that plays a part in helping a woman actually eliminate estrogen from the from her body itself after the liver's done its job it's the gut that comes into play in being able to eliminate excess hormones out through the normal channels rather than this recirculation of old hormones which could be a risk factor not only for breast cancer but also endometriosis fibroids anything that's stimulated in the presence of that estrogen what does uh, cruciferous actually mean and which vegetables are cruciferous vegetables? 
Well, we've got quite a selection. We've got the Brussels sprouts, we've got broccoli, we've got cauliflower, we've also got kale as well, cabbage. So we've got quite a, a selection of those. And I would say if women could have just one portion of those each night or most nights, it could be cauliflower one night, it could be broccoli another. I know not everybody's keen on Brussels sprouts, but just that variation of those brilliant vegetables. And the research seems to show that if they're steamed, rather than raw or boiled, that actually the benefits are stronger. So steaming those vegetables seems to have a bigger benefit in being able to release the, the substances, the phytochemicals that are gonna be best beneficial for controlling that estrogen effect, because it's gonna stop the binding of the powerful estrogen onto the estrogen receptors in the breast. I love Brussels sprouts and I sort of parboil them and then uh, for the last bit, saute them with a bit of balsamic vinegar. Oh, uh, sounds lovely. <laughs> having, chopped, having chopped them in half for the second phase, it's very good. Do you ever give phytoestrogen supplements? Yes, I do. There are some really good ones. We know there's good research on red clover. I have used fermented soya before as well. So yes, we can use um, quite a number of uh, balancing foods or nutrients like that in supplement form or use herbs as well. So it can be a combination, especially if some people aren't keen on eating those foods. It's the same with the omega-3s. A lot of women say to me, you know, I'm not going to eat the oily fish. So sometimes they need to go in in supplement form when I know that maybe they're not going to get enough in the diet or actually they, they don't want to eat those foods at all. So, I mean, just to be clear on this, so if a woman has breast cancer, you positively want them to eat phytoestrogen foods, the legume family. Yes, absolutely. And even if a woman's on HRT, where it does also carry the risk of breast cancer, those foods are really important because they're going to have a protective effect of being able to block a receptor in the breast where those more powerful estrogens can come from. And they're also coming from the environment as well. We've got endocrine disrupting chemicals coming in from cosmetics, from pesticides, from plastics. So, so if a woman puts those foods in, they're really going to have a balancing effect on hormones and also a protective effect of things that may be coming in from the environment, which we may not have any control over. And fat cells make estrogens as well. How much is um, you know, obesity and, and too much fat uh, an issue here? Yes, and that's why I ended up writing the Fat Around the Middle book, because there are issues around having this extra weight around the middle this central adiposity and it is a big risk factor for women we know that apple shaped women have a much higher risk of breast cancer it is a manufacturing plant for estrogen and women naturally as they're going through the menopause there will be some extra weight put on around the middle the body's really clever it's trying to compensate for that reduction of estrogen from the ovaries so it wants to put on a little bit of extra weight and that's fine but if it becomes too much then it's going to increase the risk of breast cancer because there's going to be too much estrogen produced from those fat cells and and always in nature it's this question of balance we don't want too little of something we don't want too much and it's getting that right because those fat cells are a manufacturing plant for estrogen 
So why do some women sail through the menopause and others not? What, what are the common menopausal symptoms and what can you do to alleviate these? Well, top of the list would always come hot flushes and night sweats. And you're right, for some women, that basically all that happens is they have the last period and that's it. And I remember a lovely lady come into the clinic and she said to me, well, my period stopped six months ago. When am I going to get any symptoms? And in the West, it's often assumed that the symptoms are going to be there. But I have to say, the more women who look after themselves, lifestyle, exercise, nutritionally, and even in that perimenopause stage, that basically if we can smooth this transition out, the slower these hormones change through this stage and beyond, the easy and more comfortable this transition is. It's when things happen abruptly. And the classic example of that is if a woman has to go through a surgical menopause and she's basically, you know, had to have a ovaries removed for whatever medical reason and she's then plunged into the menopause overnight our bodies can adapt if things are taken much more smoothly almost like a weaning process so the women who sail through the menopause often have done some preparation before or they're in good health but the classic symptoms hot flashes and night sweats there could be sleep disturbances there may be changes in memory, inability to concentrate, less vaginal lubrication, a lot of lower sex drive. So it can come with a number of symptoms and one that many women talk about but is never often thought of as a menopausal symptoms can actually be painful joints because estrogen itself is an anti-inflammatory. And as that reduces, for some women, it's not the hot flashes and the night sweats. It's actually the painfulness in the joints and they feel they say to me I feel like an old woman at 50 because they feel so uncomfortable and aching and that's why things like the omega-3s really as an anti-inflammatory especially come into their own at this stage in a woman's life. And we know about the diet you want to stabilize blood sugar make sure you have enough omega-3 if you're not eating oily fish then supplement it um, and uh, get a lot of those nice phytoestrogen rich foods and also the cruciferous vegetables. But what, what supplements, herbal and nutritional, uh, do you find have the biggest difference on menopausal symptoms? Well, I definitely put in a multivitamin for this age and stage, and I formulated one for NHP called Meno Support. And it's got in there, you want good antioxidant levels, we want nutrients in there that are going to help with bone health, so magnesium, calcium, particularly in the organic form of citrate, vitamin D3, really important. So putting in all of those, a good omega-3 supplement, and also vitamin C, because it helps manufacture collagen, and that makes up 90% of our bone matrix. So when we're thinking of not only going through this stage, but also what's going to happen in the stage after that, that's really important. And I would use, again, herbs like Agnes Castus, Black Cohosh, when there are these symptoms like the hot flushes and night sweats that could be, you know, really made a difference with. And once we get them under control, that can be, you know, the difference between quality of life. If a woman's being woken up every night, drenched in sweat and then her energy is not good the next day and then she feels she needs coffee or colas to keep herself going through that day and then you know they're going around in a, a vicious circle and like we mentioned stress 
and getting that under control is really important because cortisol is going to make these menopausal symptoms much more extreme and stop that extra production of estrone from the adrenals, which is going to help protect her bone health as well. Now, I know you can run uh, hormone tests. Uh, some of them are on blood, some on urine uh, metabolites. There's even some on saliva. So mm. in your clinic, do you, do you use hormone tests? And which, uh, which ones, what's the, what's the best way to kind of see what's going on in detail when you mention things like estrone, the different kinds of estrone? Mm. I think then we, we've got um, the use of <coughs> the Dutch test, which is a, a dried urine test, which is actually really helpful. People ask, or women ask me, can you tell if you're going through the menopause? And in theory, you could measure, measure FSH, and that's done. That's follicle-stimulating hormone, and we can also measure estradiol. But it's very, it does vary from month to month. It's not set in stone. And like you said, we actually want to see the whole picture of these metabolites and what's happening in the body at this stage. And is there a risk of too much conversion of, say, testosterone to estrogen? And this gives a really good picture of what's going on hormonally. It will also pick up what's going on with the adrenal glands as well. So it's a brilliant test for getting a, a complete picture of all the hormones and the metabolites that are happening for a woman, particularly at this stage in her life. What's your view on HRT? <laughs> well, yes, it's hormone replacement therapy. I have to say I'm not a fan, and I've, I've written a number of books. One was Natural Alternatives to HRT, and I've written a more up-to-date book on natural solutions to the menopause. For me, this is a natural stage for us as women, and we're going through this stage and out the other side. And it, for me, it's actually saying, well, nature's got this wrong. We've got a, now got a deficiency of these hormones and they need to be supplemented back again. Since 2003, I think I've got the right date, in America, they have to call it hormone therapy. They can't call it hormone replacement therapy because they've acknowledged that they're not replacing those hormones at that stage in a woman's life. They're using them as a, a therapy there is the biggest risk is the risk of breast cancer so i would think women need to be careful and there will come a stage where they would come off it so if we can help women through this stage we've got things that we can work on in terms of bone health there is that risk of breast cancer and it's weighing up always risks versus benefits so for me i'm not a big fan and i Yes, I do work with women who are happy to stay on HRT and we still do all the nutritional side for when they may be coming off of it. But I'm also seeing women who've made the decision not to go on it in the first place or they've got a strong family history risk of breast cancer or thrombosis or strokes where it may be contraindicated and therefore they need a different approach to this stage in their life. I was looking at a study uh two weeks ago that looked at progesterone levels and estrogen levels. And interestingly, if the progesterone level was very high and the estrogen was low, then that seemed to be significantly protective for breast cancer. But if the estrogen level was high and the progesterone was high, it slightly increased risk. So it made me think about, about balance. 
Mm, and that's interesting. And the difficulty with the HRTs is what the research has shown that if women's had a hysterectomy, then she only takes estrogen because the progestogen, which is the synthetic form of progesterone, is in there to protect the womb lining from uh, being stimulated too much. With HRT, the risk of breast cancer is stronger in what we call the opposed HRT when it's estrogen and progestogen together. With women on just progest uh, estrogen only, it seems less of a breast cancer risk if they only need to take that as an HRT because they've already had a, a hysterectomy. So it's interesting. I think there is very much a difference between progesterone and progestogen. But unfortunately, I do see women in the clinic who are, have a breast cancer, which is both estrogen and progesterone positive. So I think we do have to be careful with these hormones. What I think would be good that if a woman is contemplating to go on HRT, and I've seen this in the clinic where it can be really helpful, is that women have a scan beforehand. Either a breast scan ultrasound would be preferable to make sure that there's nothing there that in terms of any small tumors or anything that if the hormones are added in would it accelerate the growth and so they already know if it's clear if they're going to make the decision to go on HRT I would prefer they didn't but obviously it must be a personal choice for women it sounds like the you know the Dutch tests, which is a urinary test, uh, would be very useful uh, to actually understand what's going on. Uh, we can't say estrogen is bad, progesterone good, or whatever. It's it's all about balance, isn't it? Yes, and a, and a number of women with a history of breast cancer have done the Dutch test, and even if they're on medication, to see whether actually the medication's working. They may be on an aromatase inhibitor, and you can actually see on the Dutch test whether it's stopping that manufacture from testosterone to estrogen or they can see if they're not on any medication but they've had a history of breast cancer what is going on with the hormones now so these nutritional tests that have come out I would say over the last 10-20 years for us in this um, profession has actually been amazing of what we can look at now in terms of the gut microbiome, the hormones and the metabolites, looking at adrenal stress. I think it's really transformed our practice in being able to try and identify an underlying cause rather than just general concerns that people may have. And I think they've been so helpful. Let's talk about osteoporosis. Why is it more prevalent in women? Well, the difficulty is that you're, as a man, you're protected with, more protected with testosterone. It does affect men, but it's usually driven by the side effect of a medication like steroids. It, I, still, one in nine men do get osteoporosis. It could still carry a family history risk, but it's because we have this definite stage in our life, the menopause, where those hormones are, the estrogen's dropping down, and that would have given us some protection right up until that point. And that's when we're going to have this much bigger risk of osteoporosis. And we now know that one in two women over the age of 50 are going to get osteoporosis. It's much bigger, one in eight would get breast cancer. And yet we have this national screening program for breast cancer, which is brilliant, and we have nothing 
for osteoporosis. So my suggestion is always get a bone density scan. In my clinic in Harley Street, we've actually got what we call a DEXA machine, which is the gold standard for looking at um, bone density and risk of osteoporosis, both in the spine and the hip. And I would suggest women pay for a scan. They might get it done locally, because it's a silent disease. No, you can't have any symptoms with it. There doesn't necessarily any pain. This fragility in the bones is happening very quietly. And for many women, it's actually the fracture that gives the diagnosis. They might have had, they might have coughed and they've cracked a rib or they've hit themselves against a piece of furniture and they've now got a fracture because this fragility, this change in the bones has been going on and it's only then if they've had a, a low trauma they get a fracture they then gone to the hospital and then they've got the diagnosis of osteoporosis so it really is one of those where you actually want to work on prevention uh, can you reverse it and if so how well you can if depending on the age of a woman so sometimes we can if it's happening in the in the younger age groups and we're looking at making sure that we get the bone density back up again. In a lady over, say, the age of 60, we're either trying, we're trying to stabilise it and prevent it getting worse. So really good um, information on the nutritional side. I have to say that vitamin D is a standout. And without that, <coughs> excuse me, they're not going to be absorbing calcium efficiently. We now know so many benefits of vitamin D but it actually is this also this huge impact on bone density, really important. And of course, it's the, it's the use it or lose it. Women have got to make the demand on the skeleton. They have to make that demand in order to keep that bone density up. So anything that's gonna create that demand, whether it's walking, it's gotta have some impact there. And also good research on other activities that they might not think of like yoga where it could be improving balance because it's been realized that if we can help prevent women from falling over then there's not going to be so much of a possibility of a wrist fracture or a hip fracture so our coordination our impact what we can do to keep ourselves healthy in terms of the exercise is as important as i think as also the nutritional and the supplement side of it and what, what level of vitamin D do you want a, a woman with osteoporosis to have optimally in their blood? Well, I'm after about 100 or even 120 nanomoles per litre. 120 would be the optimum that I'm looking for in terms of osteoporosis prevention um, and to maintain it at that level. And that would be really important. So... It is, it's keeping that level up. And for some women, they may need to take a supplement all the time because they can't maintain it otherwise. And especially over the winter months in the UK, October to March time. And as well as the bone density test, there is another brilliant test that we use in the clinic, and that's called bone turnover. And it measures the collagen markers that are excreted in the urine as the bone breaks down. So even though a bone density test is the gold standard and it is important, you can't repeat it for at least a year or two years because the sensitivity of the machine doesn't show whether there have been any changes. So a woman could do the nutritional side exercise for a year 
and then not know whether it's making a big enough difference or she might need to do more. But the bone turnover is showing actually how much bone she's losing on a daily basis. So it's absolutely brilliant. And it's just a simple urine test. Now, have you seen women with a blood level of vitamin D above 100 nanomoles per litre without supplementing? Uh, no, I don't think so. No, I haven't. Only with um, higher supplementation. Have, have you seen that, Patrick? I haven't. No. No, I mean, I actually, I measured myself and I was just below 70, having spent a month in uh, Kenya, getting a lot of sun exposure and supplementing a, a basic level. And it was a bit of a wake up call because I, I suspect that we're actually designed to be outdoors uh, way longer than we are, you know, without clothes, at least enough to not be arrested. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're just living way too far south. So I, the more I read, the more I think that, uh, that we're underestimating how much we need to supplement. So I'd be interested to know, I mean, broadly, obviously it depends on uh, individuals, but how much do you generally give women with osteoporosis as to supplement? Well, I would say if they've reached the 120 nanomoles per litre, then even 400, 800, which might seem low, actually maintains it as long as they keep going with it. I have had to use 2,000, 2,500 to bring women up faster. And I do tend to use a liquid and then drop it under the tongue sublingually to get it into the bloodstream quicker than taking a capsule and swallowing it. I have to say that for some blood samples that we've sent to the lab, the lab have actually rung to say there's no vitamin D, there's no trace of it at all. It's, it has got that bad. And I think you're quite correct about this underestimation because the body does not expect us to get much from our food. There will be some oily fish and egg yolks, but it is this manufacture through the skin. And women have... A, a, probably a double effect on this because our cosmetics and moisturizers have these inbuilt sun protection factors in. So women may think they're going out <clears throat> when we have a lovely sunny day, but they've already got something that's blocking this manufacture already. And of course, darker skins, coloring up with covering up with clothing. I have to say it's been a major deficiency in the clinic and <clears throat> something that you know, has been quite surprising because there aren't really many symptoms. It's so subtle, that deficiency, that women don't even know that they've got such a, a low level. And, and I think most of the vitamin D is made in the first 20 minutes. So I'm slightly of the habit of getting my first 20 minutes without sun cream, then putting the sun cream on. Yes, and I'm even saying to the women that if you don't want to put it, you know, you don't want to expose your face because you're worried about you know, the wrinkles and everything, then maybe just expose your arms for that few minutes at a time is really important if you can. So it is important to make sure that people are getting that exposure. And we do struggle in the UK in these darker months. So it's something I think that people should test, know what their level is, because then you know how much you should be taking, retest it in three months, and then if you've got a good level of D3 and a multivitamin and mineral, you could maintain it with that. But most of the time, in order to get the level up, I'm using a separate vitamin D as well as what's in their multi to get it back to normal within that 
three month period. I have to say some people do struggle and I wonder if then they've got an issue with fat digestion and then we might use some extra digestive enzymes because they may not be actually absorbing the vitamin D sufficiently well. Now the general conception is bones are made of calcium, milk contains calcium, so you need to supplement extra calcium, drink lots of milk. Uh, how important is calcium? Do we really need to be supplementing? Well, interesting, the research suggests that it's actually vitamin D that is controlling the absorption of calcium. And unless the vitamin D is a good level, that calcium is not going to be absorbed efficiently. So I do put the emphasis on on the vitamin D rather than the calcium itself. I also think magnesium is absolutely important for bone health as well and other nutrients like boron. Um, for some women, there may be a digestive issue that's actually implicated in terms of osteoporosis. So I'm always thinking of what's going on in their digestive system because we know that if women have used a lot of laxatives, women are on proton pump inhibitors, it increases the risk of osteoporosis. So the digestive system is just as important in terms of bone health as what we're thinking in terms of exercise and vitamin D. And interesting, when we look at what's going on dietary wise, there is this acid alkali balance that is important for osteoporosis because if the diet becomes too acidic, Calcium is held in the skeleton, it's a buffer, and it neutralizes acid. So the higher or the more acidic the diet becomes, the more calcium could actually be leached out of the bones. So although milk and yogurt would be classed as pretty neutral, the hard cheeses go into this more acidic category. So some women would need to be careful um, with the dietary side, especially hard, hard cheeses, also caffeine, a lot of sugar, anything that's going to put their dietary side into a more acidic form would actually be, could be have a negative effect on their bone health. So as we move to a close, what are your five top tips for hormonal health? Well, I'd have to say reducing stress because like we talked about Patrick, cortisol is actually interfering in a lot of hormonal issues for women. Really important, no matter what age or stage we are as a woman, it's going to be a factor. But also be balancing blood sugar as well because insulin, insulin itself has a, a factor in terms of um, not burning food as energy, but storing it as fat. It's implicated in polycystic ovary syndrome where women can become insulin resistant. My top two supplements to add in would be, this would be the third one, would be putting omega-3s in there. Outstanding in terms of blood flow for women, anti-inflammatory effect, um, just helpful generally. Vitamin D3, which is really important. And my last one would be to keep moving to have some form of exercise in there even if it's just walking really important for us not only physically but also mentally as well and for us as women we can live 30 to 50 years past the menopause and yes we want that quantity of life but we want that quality and now alzheimer's is our biggest killer of as women so we need to think about our brain health, our memory, concentration. And that's what pushed me to write a book called Natural Solutions to Dementia 
and Alzheimer's. So we want to stay sharp mentally, we want physically good health. And although everybody's talked about lifespan, we're now talking about health span. To have this time of our life, this extra third past the menopause, where we're in really good health and we're just feeling well in ourselves physically and mentally. Now, you have clinics in both the UK and Ireland, and I think virtual clinics uh, for people anywhere in the world. So where are your clinics and how can people come and see you or one of your team of nutritional therapists? Yeah, so we're normally in Harley Street. We're also in Kent, Sussex, Dublin and Galway. But at the moment, of course, everything's being done remotely. And wonderful with the tests we've got, like we talked about the Dutch test, doing a, a dried urine or saliva or urine test. They can all be done remotely because the lab just sends the women a kit to their home. They take the sample, even stool tests and put it back in the post again. So brilliant. So if they go to glenvillenutrition.com, it gives all the information there about the clinic. In Ireland, it would be glenvillenutrition.ie. But yes, we're happy to help. We do help men as well and also children, but our passion is around and our expertise is around women's health and hormonal issues. So it's glenvillenutrition.com. And during this remote time, we are doing a shorter 30 minute consultation at a reduced cost for people just to give them a bit of extra help if they need something shorter. But we're able still to do all of the tests and people are happy to um, happy welcome them to get in touch with me. It's reception at, at glenvillenutrition.com. Reception at glenvillenutrition.com. Now, also, you've got a number or you've formulated a number of excellent supplements that supports women's health. Uh, are there one or two or three that, uh, in a way, your bestsellers are really useful at different phases in this process? And where can a person get these from? Yeah, so I would say the ones that stand out would be the advanced fertility support for women, because that's so wonderful in terms of natural conception going through IVF. We do a man's one as well. We mustn't forget the men in this process. And we've got a healthy woman support for the woman around up until the age of about 45. And then we've got a meno support, which clicks in for those women going through the menopause. But also there's herbal ones like Magnus Castor's premium support, black cohosh. So if they go on to naturalhealthpractice.com, then they'll see all of the supplements on there as well and can choose whatever's the best for their age and stage that they're in. Dr. Marilyn Glenville, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom over many decades of research and helping women. And of course, if you help women, you help men. So thank you very much for sharing your time and your wisdom. And uh, I wish you the very best. Thank you, Patrick. It's been lovely to speak with you.